Welcome to another episode of the Making Sense of Islam podcast. This podcast is one small part of a larger platform I've created dedicated to offering reflections on Islam, life, and mindfulness. I encourage you to visit makingsenseofislam.com to find a wide selection of articles, videos, other podcast episodes, and most importantly courses designed to distill the complexities of Islam's intellectual heritage into usable and practical tactics and strategies for day-to-day life. I'm also active on Making Sense of Islam social media accounts, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn, where you will learn about what's new and what's in the works. That's it for now. Enjoy the show. My guest today is Omar Madadar. Omar is currently the director of Qasid Institute. Qasid is an Arabic language institute based in Amman, Jordan. I have sent dozens and dozens of students to the institute over the years. They have trained and taught thousands of students from all across the world the Arabic language. If you are interested in learning Arabic, reading, writing, speaking, whether it's for uh, business purposes, educational purposes, Islamic purposes, Qasid is definitely the place where you should be looking and where you should be focusing on. We get into a lot of how Qasid works, how they teach their students, the philosophy of language acquisition. We also talk a little bit about running a business in the Middle East. Omar is also one of my oldest friends. I've known Omar since he was in high school because his older brother and I were roommates in college. So I've known Omar and his family essentially all my life. So I've really enjoyed sitting down and, and talking with him on camera. We joked a little bit before and after, but we tried to remain professional throughout this interview. I hope you find it as beneficial as I did. There are many things that I learned about language acquisition and running a business from Omar that I you know, was not thinking about before. So I learned from this conversation. I hope you do too. Please enjoy this conversation with none other than Omar Madadar. Omar, welcome to the show. Thank you, Tariq. Nice to be with you. Nice to be with you. Thank you for making the time. No, thank you so, so much for having me. I have a whole host of things I want to ask you, but let's start with the obvious, uh, which is, you know, the, the theme or the concept of the Arabic language, learning and studying the Arabic language. I know that you, you know, after undergrad, you spent uh, some time studying yourself. And now, mashallah, you're running this uh, business. We're, we're going to get to that. We're going to get to Qasid. But if you can, I'd like to hear from you you know, in your, your journey with the Arabic language and why it's so important? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think it's a great place for us to start. Uh, and it's actually oftentimes when speaking to our own students uh, at the Institute where you, discuss, you mentioned just a second ago here in Amman, we talk about that a lot as well, just about one's own journey and uh, thinking about where someone is right now and trying to actually kind of imagine where they're going forward. And so I do bring up my own story with that a bit as well to give them some context as well and give them say a real life example of something that you know somebody has done uh, and hopefully they can actually do better then. Uh, but my own experience, uh, oddly enough, is that so my freshman year of college, as a part of my general curriculum requirements, I had to choose a language and uh, Spanish was full. Uh, so I wasn't able to get into Spanish. Uh, and so uh, I actually chose Arabic at that time, really not of my own accord. It was my, my first choice uh, to, to choose Arabic. I really wanted to study Spanish at the time. This is pre 9-11. So before 9-11, it was very easy to get into an Arabic classroom in the US. After 9-11, it became very difficult uh, to find a seat in a classroom for, you know, even for first year Arabic. 
uh, probably until someone say third year, junior year or so, because it was so kind of so popular at that time. So I actually took that first year of Arabic, uh, my undergraduate, and it wasn't the best beginning. Um, and that is not the fault of the university or the, the professors. Uh, they, they tried their best, uh, but I didn't put in the effort that I probably should have. But oddly enough, uh, so uh, the, one of the professors, Dr. Sami Montasar, I still remember well, I think she's with the UN or she may have retired now actually. Uh, she, partway through the year, uh, she actually mentioned to me the, the Middlebury program uh, in Vermont. At the time it was in Vermont, they went to Monterey, California for some time, they're back in Vermont now, uh, the, the summer Arabic program. And so oddly enough, in the sense that I wasn't her best student. And so strangely enough, she kind of mentioned to me, I don't know if you want, you're interested in this program, this intensive program in Vermont. Uh, and so, you know, she talked to me a bit about it and the language pledge they have there and how intensive it is. Uh, and I actually got interested and she told me she'd write me a letter of recommendation. And again, this is pre 9-11. So I think even getting into Middlebury, although it was competitive, it was, it was easier at that time uh, as well. So she gave me that letter of recommendation, I applied, I got into the program and I went that summer. And for many reasons, I actually consider that to be the beginning of my Arabic study. Uh, and this is something we actually mentioned to a lot of students as well, uh, that they have these signs and qualities of successful language learners they discuss in, uh, in the field of second language acquisition. We can maybe talk about those more later, but one of the, the most important signs and qualities they mention for someone to be successful in the future is they actually have an initial good experience with the language. Mm. And Middlebury for me was my initial good experience. I just absolutely loved it. Uh, I loved the focus. I loved just how much progress uh, that you know, myself and my colleagues who were there were able to make. Uh, even the physical campus itself, it was just a wonderful experience that summer. Uh, and so for me, when I think about when Arabic really became a part of my life uh, and uh, you know, I mean, now it's, it's a major part of my life, of course, but it really started to, to kind of enter into my life. I, I really put it back to that summer, uh, that summer at Middlebury. Uh, and, uh, you know, right after that summer, 9-11, I came back to Washington, D.C., where I was doing my undergraduate. And right after that, when I came back, 9-11 happened. Uh, and so then everything in Arabic and teaching Arabic as a foreign language really changed significantly. Uh, but I'm really grateful that I was able to kind of get in the door at that point in time and to have that experience, that initial good experience there at Middlebury which I think really kind of pushed things forward thereafter. So I did not know at all, actually this is the first time I knew that you went to Middlebury, but now I know why, because that was the summer I got married. Yes, so, exactly. Okay, so that's why that summer, obviously for obvious reasons, my focus was, was mm -hmm. elsewhere. Okay, so mm -hmm. you, you come back and you continued when you were an undergrad, you continued. Yeah, I did, so I came back, I came back, um, so this is my sophomore year and I went into, um, I think they tested me actually into, it was maybe like third year or fourth year Arabic. It was the advanced Arabic class that we had a number of uh, native Arabic speaking students uh, from mm. mainly from the Gulf region studying at the university. And a lot of them were taking Arabic, I think just basically kind of for an easy grade. And so they would always be tested into the, into the highest levels. Uh, and I think, you know, at that time as well, even in the field of teaching Arabic as a foreign language, testing uh, was still kind of coming along, you know, proficiency testing and and even placement exams at universities. So I must've done something, the placement interview that, that, that impressed them or whatever credits I had. And so they put me into this particular level, which was probably higher than where I should have been. Mm. So I did it that, uh, it would have been the fall semester uh, of my sophomore year, but then I actually took a break uh, in the spring semester. Then the summer after that, I did a program at Georgetown University, 
and they had an intensive summer program as well. So I did that summer program, which was also, I found very useful. And then unfortunately, actually my junior and senior year, I took a total break from Arabic. I didn't study any Arabic at all, whether uh, you know, on campus at the university or outside in any sort of kind of you know, private lessons or anything. Uh, so I had that two year break. And then towards the end of my junior year, senior year, I kind of you know, got this, you know, I guess my interest in Arabic uh, was um, awakened once again, and, and I wanted to actually go abroad. I hadn't actually done any sort of study abroad for Arabic uh, or anything. Uh, and so I wanted to actually go abroad. And at that time, uh, the main place to go, uh, and hopefully inshallah in the future, it'll kind of become the main place again, was Egypt. And so, you know, Umad Dunya, that, that was the place where, where you go for, for everything. And Arabic is a second language, including. And so that was my main goal. I wanted to go to a particular, there was a particular institute, a private institute there in Cairo that I was interested in actually attending. Uh, and my brother actually was also doing study, he was studying abroad as well. He happened to be in Jordan. He had been to Amman, uh, or he, I'm sorry, he came to Amman basically nine months before I was planning on coming. And he'd been to Egypt before, he'd studied in Cairo briefly. Uh, and so he told me, why don't you come out here and just visit, see if you like it, if you like it, you, know, you can maybe come here and then just be here for say six months or so and then go to Egypt. Uh, so I came for a visit uh, to Jordan, I liked it. Uh, I mean, at the time they, they referred to it and may maybe they still do as the, you know, the Hashemite kingdom of boredom. Uh, so it, it, was, it was a quiet place uh, with not much necessarily going on. Uh, but there was, uh, there was, you know, there were good resources for studying Arabic I and mean, kind of get focused and studying. Uh, so I decided to come, it was the, that was June of 2004, and my plan was to be here for six months and then to continue on to Egypt. And so now, close to 17 years later, uh, I, I, still haven't, <laughs> I still haven't made it to Egypt, although I, I visited a number of times. So at, this at the time that you were in Jordan, uh, was your interest in Arabic, I mean, for lack of like a better word, was it like a secular interest, like I'm just interested in the language, or was your interest also, I want to learn the language so that I can pursue uh, classical Islamic uh, studies to approach classical texts in the original language? Oh, yeah, my, my goal was definitely, when I came to Jordan, my, my goal was definitely to be able to access classical texts. That really was my main focus. So, I so would at that say, time, you were, you were like a quote-unquote talibul ilm. Yeah, I would say, I mean, in terms of definitely in, in terms of the overall sense of kind of the, the goals of studying classical Islamic texts, uh, to access those particular resources, access experts in those particular fields, and to be able to actually, you know, gain some, some level of proficiency therein, that was definitely my goal. Uh, and so in terms of actually working with Arabic and other fields, well, maybe it was kind of a secondary value uh, that I recognized at the time, uh, but I'm, I'm probably maybe just like thinking that backwards now, but I, I, that wasn't my main goal in my mind. So in, the, in that moment when you were a talabul ilm, a lot of people that are going to be watching and listening to this are, you know, uh, tulab and, and uh, we both come from that background as well. There are two things I want to ask you about. One, do you remember or was there a moment in time where you switched from accessing Islamic studies in English to Arabic? And can you remember? I remember that for myself it was very mm -hmm. distinctly. So that's one question. And the second question that I think a lot of students of sacred knowledge, as we sometimes translate in English, a lot of times there's a, like a crisis that they have, like, what do I do? Like, do I keep going? Like, is there another mountain peak? You know, is there another scholar somewhere hidden somewhere that I can go and study these texts with? And you can just like do that forever. 
uh, and, and somebody's got to knock some sense into you. I remember having one of my teachers knock some sense. He's like, you, you can't just keep hanging out here. All of a sudden, you actually have to do something. So I want to ask you about th both those questions. So first, was there a moment that you remember where you're like switching from English to Arabic? That's a really good question. Um, I haven't actually thought about it in some time. So I would say that first came in 2004. And so I studied the Qasid as well, where I currently work. And when I entered the Qasid program, I was basically what would be considered maybe a high intermediate, maybe kind of, you know, bordering on the advanced level a, a bit at that time, although our levels have changed over the years, but basically kind of according to this, the, the standards that were being used at that time. And so I would say at that point, I was accessing texts on, on some level. Uh, and so something we also discuss a lot with students, whether it be kind of in our general introduction to language or even when students kind of come in for one-on-one -on -one sessions to get some advice on studying Arabic, is that almost from any level of studies, any student can access any text theoretically, but according to their level. Mm. So there's going to be an aspect of that someone, you know, even at a very, very early stage of the process can actually take an authentic text and begin to recognize things. They can recognize that, you know, pronouns, they can recognize that something is either, you know, feminine or masculine. They can recognize that it's in the past tense or it's a verb in the first place, or it's past tense or it's present tense. They can begin to engage with the text, even at that kind of structural level. Uh, because every text is going to have what they refer to as, you know, external structure and internal structure. And that external structure, the kind of what they see physically there on the page in front of them, is oftentimes the easiest structure for us to be able to kind of use as a window into the text, into what the author intended, and then also the, the overall context for what they've written. The internal structure, I think that is the biggest challenge uh, for a lot of students, and especially like you mentioned, students who are uh, trying to access classical texts, students who are saying they've taken a particular track or route of, of doing of, of classical, uh, classical knowledge. The big reason that's a challenge is there's this kind of double whammy uh, that, that, that comes in front of these students. They have, on the one hand, the language itself, which is challenging. I, I don't want to say Arabic is impossible to learn. Sometimes it's, it's kind of made out as this language you'll never learn and nobody ever learns it, which isn't true. But it is a challenge. I mean, it does require uh, some, some focused work. Uh, but at the same time, in addition to the language itself, there's all this domain knowledge that is oftentimes very, very foreign uh, to anyone who's really studying these particular texts. Whereas on the other side, for someone for whom uh, Arabic is a goal, is kind of a key towards, say, studying uh, you know, modern politics, economics, healthcare uh, issues related to refugees in the region and outside the region, they have an advantage in that you know, they're at least in our, our program and students who are normally doing study abroad, they're adults, you know, they're, they're over 18 normally, they're, they're in their uh, undergraduate years, graduate years. So they have a, you know, a liberal arts education. They've been educated. They, they can speak intelligently on the topic of healthcare in their own native languages. Uh, they can speak about economics. They can speak, speak about politics. Mm. And so they have mental frames that already exist for these topics. Mm. Uh, they can actually engage with that already. And while I don't want to oversimplify, it's not simply just a matter of translation. They're not just using new words for it. They, they are learning about these topics in a different context, but they have a, a much, you know, kind of, they have much more assistance with these mental frames that they already have in order to be able to access that material. Whereas a challenge with those who are trying to actually access classical, classical texts in Arabic specifically is that that domain knowledge represents a completely different mental frame. 
So anyone you can see who's trying to access, and we see this a lot with students who are, uh, whether they're doing it for say reasons of personal piety, and that's why they're studying Arabic, or people are studying Arabic for graduate studies, especially a lot of students are doing it for say, master's, PhD in Islamic studies. Uh, they'll come to our program and want to work with our instructors on you know, working through classical texts. And when a classical text relates to you know, business dealings, buying and selling, weights and measurements, you know, the, you know, what, what is, for example, the, you know, what alms do you have to pay on particular animals and the, all these things that are there, these are, these are things that they've never ever experienced in their life in any context whatsoever. Yeah. Uh, you know, and so because of that, that becomes a serious problem. So to, to get to your, your question about for myself, I feel like there was a gradation that mm. happened uh, where I felt kind of more and more comfortable. Uh, there was a time where I felt that, you know, I, I, I started to notice myself maybe about after about a year being here that I could start reading, say, extended uh, amounts of material. You know, what I mean by extended by that point in time is say, you know, one page, two page, three pages, where I felt like I was spending more time with the book than I was with the dictionary. So there was a transition yeah. where earlier I felt I was spending more time with the dictionary than I was with the book. Uh, and so the, it, it was actually me reading the dictionary and referencing the book as it, where it became mm. then I'm reading the book and referencing the dictionary. Uh, so I started to kind of feel that maybe after about say nine months to a year of being here, but where I feel like I really had a significant jump in my own um, language learning, especially as it relates to classical texts, uh, is that I actually spent a year in the Emirates uh, so I, I lived in Abu Dhabi uh, with some family members, and I was studying privately there with a West African teacher who I'm still in, uh, in very close contact with. And I had the value that he doesn't speak any, uh, you know, English, of course, whatsoever. And his own learning background is really this domain knowledge that we're talking about that's, that's so foreign to me is the domain knowledge that's actually very, very familiar to him. And the domain mm. knowledge that I'm aware of was actually, at least at that time, uh, was quite foreign to him. That, you know, so it was this kind of opposite experience. And he was living alone there uh, in, in, in the Emirates and very, very kind of you know, generous with his time uh, and just even with his physical space. And he welcomed me into his home for a good, say, 10, 12 hours a day uh, over the course of that year. And we just spent time not really having, you know, you could say, classes proper, but just a lot of time of me being able to access his library. Uh, it, was, it was relatively small at the time, but access his library and just read and ask questions. Mm. Uh, and th that was something for me that particular year when I came back uh, to Jordan after that year, I felt a difference and I kind of noticed that difference even in my interactions with people who had known me before leaving and coming back that they also noticed that difference as well. So that's a very long, Response no, to your no, question. Uh, that's that's beautiful. I love this uh, term, uh, domain knowledge. So you you've given me now a term that helps me articulate my own experience. My own experience was similar, but a little different. It was a little different in that it was sudden. So I came to Al Azhar and I was very interested in studying law and tasawwuf uh, for whatever reason, both at the same time. And it was studying these two sort of introductory texts in Arabic in very much the same regards. I mean, of course, the Egyptians are, are, are gonna be more worldly than the West Africans that you mentioned, but still their domain knowledge of the quote unquote world is completely different than mine. Uh, and it was that shift like, oh my God, I, I have like a, now a new way of understanding Islam that I never experienced in any of my classes as an undergrad, certainly nothing remotely even similar to my like, Sunday school experience. 
And for me, I oftentimes, I mean, it's a little bit dramatic, but I oftentimes liken it to like, I felt like I became Muslim for the first time because <laughs> I started understanding this domain knowledge and these concepts in a way that were very, were not articulated in English. And as a matter of fact, when I went to Princeton after my experience at Azhar, it was very difficult for me to read secondary sources because I could not find that anymore. I, I, the, the, the secondary sources were always very bare and, in my opinion, missed the mark. I mean, I think there's a lot of bad stuff written in, in the Western languages about Islam even till today. So th that's why I asked about it because it's something that, now you've given me this term, now I can explain it. So I'm, I mean, I can go on and on, but I'm, I'm grateful for it. So thank you, that, that's a beautiful answer. And then the second part of that question was, uh, what was the second part of my question? Which is when you started learning uh, uh, Arabic and you started accessing did you have this like crisis that a lot of us that want to study the sacred sciences have like, what do I do now? Do I just keep going? Or when is it enough? Or do I join like a seminary? How did you deal, deal with that? That's like a fork yeah. in the road for a lot of yeah, us. Yeah, that's a very, very good question. Yeah, so I think definitely in terms of for, because we have a lot of our students as well who come through Qasid have a, a similar, uh, as you said, they, they come to that particular point in their journey and they have to make a decision as to what they're going to do. Uh, with their time and also what they want to do with the, their life in general. You know, how do they actually want to, do they want to have a particular career? Uh, do they want to work in a particular field? What is it that they want to do? Uh, personally, I didn't actually, I don't remember having that same experience, especially kind of when speaking with students, uh, a lot of the experiences they have where they, it, they feel it's very, very stark. I have to go this way or I have to go that way. I have to make a particular decision. I have to do it now. I personally didn't actually have that experience. Uh, so uh, what, what really happened with me was I found that I was studying these subjects and then I started working at Qasid in 2006, the end of 2006. So I'd come here 2004 and then I started working at Qasid in 2006. And so the, the subject matter and the material, you know, kind of classical texts, accessing, you know, classical Islamic texts and also, you know, pre-Islamic texts and actually kind of engaging in that particular field and, and that, that area, that continued with me. It continues to this day. I mean, that, that's something that I, I, I remain, uh, uh, you know, deeply interested in and it's something that I, I try to spend as much time as I can on. But I found that when I started working, uh, that the, the work itself was something that I really enjoyed. I, mean, I really en enjoyed working with students. I really enjoyed working with study abroad programs. Um, and, and so that, it may have been that just kind of being busy with something that I was, uh, that I really enjoyed, that I didn't have the same type of, say, I don't want to say confusion. I don't want to kind of use a negative term, but say a, a same type of decision to make that Ooh. others felt that they had to make. Because uh, I definitely feel that something that occurs for a lot of students who are studying this type, you know, uh, whether we want to call it classical studies, traditional studies, whatever the kind of the term we want to use, I think one of the problems that happens uh, that I've definitely seen over the years with a number of students is that the the actual process of study, it, a lot is actually put on the shoulders of the students, not just the learning process. They actually have to, you know, attend class and take good notes and review at home and do exams, what, what it may be, but actually even who do they study with, when do they study, what books do they study, you know, which kind of overall, uh, say, methodology do they follow, there are all these questions that are kind of put on their shoulders that they have to actually answer, and they're constantly, they're the ones who are kind of directing themselves to what direction they go in, mm. and so it's interesting, and I mean, when, when I go to, you know, my own university studies, 
when we came into the university in you know, our freshman year, you know, we had different tracks we could choose. I mean, we had a lot of options and, and university students in the United States have a lot of options. But at the end of the day, there is a limit. There's a limit in time. There's a limit in the number of majors that, you know, I knew for a fact that I was not going to go into computer engineering. I just, you know, that, that was not going to happen. I, I wasn't going to go into fine arts. That wasn't going to happen. I just, both of those things aren't things that I'm particularly interested in or, or do very well at. So even though the option was available, it was it was narrowed down. And I also had four years and I had, you know, a parent who was not going to <laughs> continue to pay the exorbitant fees for, for, forever. And so because of that, that, you know, although I should, I'm very grateful to my parents for, uh, for all the support. I don't want to, they, they've always supported me you know, uh, with everything that I've done. But the, the basic idea is that when you have some of the traditional studies, there's an aspect of, you can just kind of almost continue on. You can continue doing that because yeah. There isn't, say, a system that's there that's telling you that, look, you have to choose the following, you have this amount of time, and then it's over. Uh, there, the, the option to kind of just hang out uh, and kind of enjoy the experience is really there. I mean, and you find a lot of people end up doing that. And I feel for a number of students, the crisis that you mentioned before comes to them oftentimes after a period of a lot of hanging out. They, they, they've actually spent a lot of time in the region where they, they, they've kind of just hung out a bit and, you know, enjoyed themselves and, you know, they've gotten some Arabic and they've done some tourism. Well, and I'd like to think that, that me and your brother, you know, stumbling our way through all of this help, helped you. Yeah, exactly. You were a few years older than you, like, okay, maybe I don't want to be like them exactly. <laughs> and for me, I saw those guys that were older than me and, and the word that I use is that they were stuck. A lot, I saw a lot of people stuck in the Middle East, stuck in Muslim-majority countries. Sorry to cut you off, but just to add this point, and I saw that because, like you said, there's no map. I mean, you know, this was completely voluntary. All of these studies that we're talking about are completely voluntary. No one's going to tell you yes or no. So you can just keep going. You can keep jumping from, like, one circle of studying to another. So, yeah, I mean, I, I'm glad you're, you were talking because this is a real problem. And to be honest, it seems like you you know, you had it figured out early. To be honest, I still struggle with this. I still mm -hmm. struggle like, am I doing everything that I should be doing? Am I living up to the obligation that I have to teach, you know, to pass on the way it was given to me? But the problem, you know, to go back to this idea of like domain knowledge, the infrastructure also in the West at least isn't there at all. Like mm -hmm. a mosque, you know, in America doesn't want, you know, like some super faqih or like mufti. Mm -hmm. You know, they, mm -hmm. need, they need like a, a, a guidance counselor. Yep. So when I started doing mosque work uh, in the Washington, D.C. area, I was surprised that every month, more and more and more of my time is spent counseling, just sort of like life skill stuff, and less and less time on, uh, you know, qala Allah or qala Rasulullah or like the Sharia stuff. Mm -hmm. and, and no one, no one prepared me for that. Uh, <laughs> so that, that's, that's a problem, I, I think, exists. And... Um, I'm glad that you you figured it out early. So you know you you just started working as you were studying, and this one thing led to. And for you, that was just natural. Is that uh, accurate? Yeah, absolutely. I I definitely don't want to kind of make a claim that I that I'd actually figured it out. I think it was more that there was an aspect that I found something that I was interested in, that I enjoyed, that that, that I really wanted to do, and that kind of guided me in a particular direction. Uh, whereas I think that some of those students they were doing things that they enjoyed, but there there wasn't the same amount of 
mean, the word that's coming to my mind is routine. There, there wasn't a particular mm. system that was there. Work gives you a lot of routine and you have yeah. to actually kind of work on a daily basis, go in and there's, you know, there, you're, you're, you're building in, in many ways, a lot of different skills. And it's interesting because we're definitely talking about in the context of say students who are studying, say Islamic studies, classical Islamic studies, like you mentioned, students who are interested in going back and actually working in the Muslim community, you know, in many different levels in the United States, the UK, continental Europe, other places. And even in, in, in areas that are traditional Muslim societies, you know, going to uh, you know Turkey, going to uh, going to Pakistan, going to Indonesia, Malaysia, other places. What's interesting is that you'll find even so, so students who are actually coming from say a whole host of other backgrounds with a whole host of other say level areas of interest and levels of interest also for Arabic. And what's the, actually the catalyst for them studying? Mm. Many of them have a very similar experience. Mm. And so you'll find that, so I've met a lot of students who've been here that they've come abroad, they've kind of caught the study abroad bug, they've really liked it, they like the, the you know, whether it be Jordan, the greater Amina region. And so they were here for a year, two years, and, and, and they were enjoying things. But then somehow, some way, they started getting involved with different things that was kind of a bit of that hanging out. You know, they, they, you know, they joined like a running club, they joined like a music club. And so I'd meet them, you know, somewhere and we'd, we'd talk and say, I love it here. And I'm, you know, I'm doing this, I'm doing that and everything's great. And just like, you could see like just how happy they were. And, you know, be asking me like, what are your plans for the future? So, you know, I don't have any plans of going back right now and I want to be here and, and things, they're really looking forward to it. Whereas, you know, say another two, three years go by, they get to this kind of five year mark and you just see the, the look on their face had changed drastically. They just looked just very kind of lost and I don't know what I'm doing. And then they had all these regrets about the past two, three years, what they've done. And they feel very desperate. They have to somehow kind of like make this huge leap back to their home kind of place. And they feel like they've lost that on time and yeah. their friends have been working and their CVs have kind of gotten you know longer. And so all that stuff kind of coming together. What's interesting I think is what I've really noticed for a lot of those students, the thing kind of gathers a lot of them together is that if the, the ones who come abroad and regardless of what they're trying to study, the ones who I think have really felt most, you could say grounded in terms of what they've done here, have achieved the most and been able to kind of, if they choose to go back uh, to their home countries or go elsewhere and really move forward with it, are those that there's some sort of standard that, they, that they're working towards. Mm. You know, so the students that we find who are kind of like just absolutely focused are normally those working in the foreign service of some particular country. Because they have at the end of their one year, nine months, six months, whatever has been allotted to them for their, for their Arabic studies, they have an exam they're going to take, they know about this exam, uh, they know the overall content of the exam, and this exam is going to have an impact on wh where they are in the foreign service, what their salary will be, uh, you know, how they're actually going to move, it's, it's a very, very real exam for them. Whereas when the studies don't necessarily have that type of a, you could say that we talked about this idea with text having external structure. If, they are, if their life doesn't have this type of external structure to it, then it's, it, it's normally the minority of students who are kind of so motivated and so kind of clear in their thinking that they know I want to accomplish one, two, three, four, and then I'm ready to go. Mm. And so once they start kind of getting in the beginning, they're kind of enjoying the freedom and enjoying the different things they're doing. But then just a normal human experience is there's, there's a feeling of kind of loss, uh, loss of time. And then also that they themselves are kind of lost that what am I doing and where am I going? And that you know, there's a certain panic uh, that comes with that at that point in time. So Omar, moving <clears throat> from the topic of, you know, your personal studies more sort of into the Institute Qasid. So, I'd like to learn 
more and I'd like people that are watching and listening to, to hear from you. Uh, first of all, anyone that's ever come to me to, that wants to study Arabic, I think with the, with the exception of very few people, I say you should go to Qasid. And I've you know, emailed you many times and sent people to you many times and things like that. Yeah, thank you very much. And, and, uh, no, no, my pleasure. And that's because, well, I mean, I know you, of course, I've known you forever, but I've actually visited several times. And one of the things that struck me about Qasid is that it's professional. And I want people to understand why that's important, because in this part of the world, in the Middle East, it's very hard to find a high level of professionalism in some sectors. I mean, some sectors, of course, that exist, but in a sector like this, you know, studying Arabic, where, where there's a, a tinge of, of religion and religiosity and personal piety embedded in it for obvious reasons, you know, the reasons that we just talked about, it's very hard, in my opinion, to find that professionalism. And I've always found Qasit to be professional. You, know, you guys respond to emails. You can set up you know, Zoom calls or, or, or FaceTime calls with you know, potential students. You guys offer tours. You answer people's questions. So I feel like, okay, good. I can send people there because I know that the way that the Western mind works, they're going to find the answers to the questions that they have. So I guess the first question I have it, it, with what I just said is how do you guys maintain that level of professionalism operating in the Middle East? Because it, it is, I find, a, a, a challenge and, and, and very, you know, there are a lot of odds that you have to overcome, I think, to establish that in, in my work experience. So how do you guys overcome that? Yeah, that's a very, very good question. Uh, and so I would say that, I mean, it's something that as an organization, you know, whether kind of say being in, 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 in Jordan, in, so in Amman, in Jordan, in the greater Middle East, and then also just you know, uh, worldwide, there are any number of challenges that we face as an organization that many organizations face uh, that, that are very similar. And so that same point about say a certain amount of professionalism, how do we actually kind of really um, make sure we keep that? If I already have a very short answer, I mean, I would say that the the founder of Qasid, so Qasid was founded at the end of 2001, beginning of 2002. Uh, we don't have the exact date, uh, <laughs> but it's kind of the end of 2001, beginning of 2002. So the founder of Qasid, as, an, as a person, just as an individual, uh, he's always really cared, you know, just about, you know, so there's caring about the organization, there's caring about the staff, and there's caring about the students in a general sense. But just really cared in the sense that you know if there's if there's a staff member or a student who's kind of upset and they didn't have a good experience and you know it, it, things didn't work out for them in that sense that it really bothered you know it it, it, it would it would keep him up up at, at night like it was yeah. it was something that really affected him and to this day I mean it's something that you know while we have a kind of a, a much larger organization that's there running things and whatnot uh, you know himself and other people kind of like or you could say more like the board of uh, of Placid are still there um, very much kind of you know. Um, caring about the organization, interested in, uh, in, in how the, all people who are in, a part of it are actually kind of experiencing it. But I would just say that word, just caring, mm. has a big impact on everything else that comes down the line. And I would say that that's something that yeah, I'm sure you've seen this as well, kind of in, you know, in, in your own work and your own kind of training uh, that you've done with people, then kind of teaching them about, uh, you know, how, how businesses and organizations run, that company culture is real, organizational culture is real. And mm -hmm. a lot of that, you know, it really comes from, uh, you know, there's going to be people who 
the founders of organizations, people in say administration, people are kind of leading an organization. But it's also, there's, there's you know, there, there's a loop to it. it. It can't just be kind of one direction. It has to be something that people mm. also who are in the organization feel themselves, they're actually a part of that. And it's not simply that someone is telling them to do one, two, three, but they actually see that person doing it. You know, so you know, take it back to the same person early on in the organization, you know, this would be the, a person who, when Costa is a very small, and when I first came to visit Costa, uh, not to romanticize it, but it was basically like a one-room schoolhouse. I mean, it, it, it was you know in, in the basement of somebody's home. Uh, there was one classroom that was the, that was the one room they had, and uh, they had maybe two other rooms: one for kind of like a faculty lounge, another room to do some recordings and things. But that was it. It was it was a very small place uh, with I think around seven students at the time. When class first started, it was actually a two-bedroom apartment, and the teacher you know taught in one room and slept in the other. Then that was really where it started. Uh, but you know this the, the founder of Posit, who himself, I mean, in his, his own life is 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 a very accomplished individual. You know, um, highly intelligent, works very hard. But he would go out and get into a cab every day and take you know he would take the lunch orders of the students and you know get into a cab and go to you know, kind of different restaurants and pick up their lunch orders for them and bring them and make sure their lunch was kind of there and hot and ready for them so they didn't actually have to kind of go out and do that because you know the, the location at that time was kind of a bit far from from any particular restaurants. Mm. So that, that's something, I mean, he's, he's, he's not gaining anything from that. I mean, there's nothing that's yeah. doing, doing that for like seven students who are, who are kind of in a non-man suburb, uh, but it's just, just caring uh, about people. And so I think what happens a lot of times in that same point you mentioned about communication, about, you know, how exactly students, whether they're being responded to, whether they feel like, you know, the, any sort of concerns or, you know, uh, constructive criticism or criticism, whether it be constructive or otherwise, is actually that it's, it's going to find someone who's going to listen to it uh, and really try to actually work through it and, and, and see where we can kind of make, uh, make improvements. That just involves that person actually really caring. I, I feel like that's really kind of the base level that's there. And this is not to say that in the Middle East, uh, people don't care. You know, I, I don't want to kind of use that as the example, because I think this is something that, that caring or a lack of caring affects organizations worldwide. Uh, you know, all of us have had that experience where we go to an airport and there's an, you know, we for some reason are late or we missed our flight or we did whatever it may be. And we come, we find there's a staff member who's there who really shows that they actually kind of care uh, about our situation. And there's somebody else who, while they're not, you know, doing anything wrong, they just very kind of stone faced apply whatever the policy is. And we don't feel like we've been cared for, you know, mm. and we may be maybe within our rights or not, but we probably for the rest of our lives, we'll, we'll try to avoid that airline and we'll try to tell our, you know, anyone who asks us about it to not catch a go, kind of fly with that same airline. And this is something I think that it's actually an advantage you find in the Middle East is that you can, especially as it relates to hospitality, how people kind of, actually how people are kind of welcomed into a family that when when the staff of any organization can see, you know, us who are in the field of education can see their, their student body and others as people who are kind of coming into their home on a certain level, that aspect of caring, it really does matter to them. I mean, it, it really kind of bothers them, the, the idea that someone who's a guest of theirs would somehow in any particular way kind of feel offended. Mm. Uh, and so I think that's something that there's, there's a significant advantage that's there that sometimes where you have, you don't have the same, say, strict level of, say, um, procedures and processes that, that, that are there in organization that you can allow that human element to be there, which is the really, it's the underlying driver uh, for everything else. So I'm glad you mentioned that, you know, culture. Uh, what I learned is that uh, uh, 
corporate culture or organizational culture, it's really hard to fix if it's not right. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, unfortunately, I, I've had to let people go in the past because you know they were just opposite to the culture and the, you know the direction and and all of that. So it sounds like you know the founder figure in this equation is the key to infusing the organization with this culture of care. And then the other thing that you said that you know I can't emphasize enough is the importance of communication. And in the in in the case of a business or or you know providing a service or a product. You have to over communicate to the customer. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, I would go and say in, in anything really. I mean, if I if if I did not receive feedback from my teachers, I would know how I'm doing. And that's mm -hmm. one of the things that I was blessed with that my teachers cared enough to to communicate. Like, yeah, yeah, you should do this. No, you should do that. And when it comes to organized work, whether it's non for profit or or, or commercial, they, they need to over communicate. But in the Middle East, I have found it's one of my you know top probably the number one critique I have. Is this complete lack of communication, mm -hmm. um, and you know sometimes you just kind of feel like you're like moping in the dark and like you don't know what's going on, uh, but because you guys are doing that, you know, mashallah, it, it's it's um, you've been rewarded for that, you know, with, with loyalty. So a little bit about about the program. I know you know, mashallah, almost 20 years of work or, or about 20 years. Where are we now in Qasid? And you know, what can you give us give us a sense of? Like how many students, I mean, I know we're recording this during, you know, COVID and all of that. So that's going to, a lot of these numbers will be uh, handicapped by that. But generally, you know, average, how many students do you guys cater to throughout the year? How many countries are you guys, or do, or do students come from, um, you know, repeat, if they're repeat customers or repeat students? Can you give us a sense of like where we are number-wise with Qasid? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's a very good point that all of this is going to be kind of a pre-COVID world. Uh, and hopefully there is a post-COVID world that we can look forward to. Oh, uh, but, but yeah, so that pre-COVID, uh, in terms of our program here on site in Amman, uh, we work on a quarter system. So summer, fall, winter, and spring. And so the number of students varies uh, based on those quarters. Normally the summer and fall are going to be our busiest times here uh, in, in, in Amman in general, when students coming to study abroad and Apostle specifically. In the summertime over the past few years, we've normally had, say, around 450 students with us in, in the summertime here in Ahmed. Wow, okay. Uh, that, that's normally our, our busiest time. In the fall, it's, it's varied as well, um, but somewhere in the range of, say, 325 to 350 students. And then in the winter and spring, it's normally closer to say 250 students. That's kind of where it's been over the past uh, past few years. Now that includes students of kind of a wide range. So you have students who are coming to study with us as a part of our core program, which I'll talk about uh, a little more in a second. Uh, and then you have students who are studying with us as part of their university study abroad. So it's actually, it's a requirement for their university that they actually do a study abroad for their degree. Uh, and then you also have students who are studying as individuals or doing private classes or students who are with us, you know, from they're, they're working in the foreign service uh, you know, and their, their, whether it be uh, their, their embassy or whatever kind of part of their foreign service work that requires them to get a certain level of Arabic. Um, and so in kind of a particular range that's there as well. And then like we spoke about before, we have a lot of students who are studying with us, uh, mainly the students who are studying classical Arabic. They're not really doing it for their university studies or doing it uh, for say work purposes, but more just personal reasons, oftentimes for say reasons, personal piety. So you have that particular range of students uh, who are with us. The um, what's I guess I mean to talk about kind of the the, the current situation because we've we've had an online program as well the, the the numbers I've just 
mentioned right now are for students studying with us in Amman. We've had an online program for around say 10 years now, just over oh, 10 years. Oh, I didn't years. realize it was that old. Yeah, so we've had that program for, for quite some time. We had a number of different iterations with that. Uh, and so basically in the past, say five years or so, uh, we really settled upon making our online learning primarily one-on-one. -on -one. Okay. Uh, we found that one-on-one -on -one learning online worked quite well with a lot of students, uh, that a lot of students, they really liked that kind of focused amount of work that was there. They liked the flexibility about it and the ability to kind of continue with their studies. Uh, there were challenges that, that arose with say uh, some of the, whether it be, you know, time zones and other things that are happening um, with, uh, with group classes. Uh, but during the COVID experience, we've had, uh, we've switched even our group classes on, on, online as well. Uh, and we've been, uh, we've been very happy with uh, kind of the, how, that's, how that's worked out. I think definitely there, there are things, you know, for, for the students and also for the staff, there are things we, of course, we, you know, we miss dearly about having an, an in-person experience. But there's also stuff that's happened that, you know, as an organization this past year, it's given us a time to really kind of, you know, you know kind of come in a little bit together uh, and focus on particular projects that we wanted to work on for a number of years, but just just the regular movement of things, we haven't really been able to get that type of focus. That hopefully when we're able to actually come back to an in-person experience, that will be that much actually more fruitful for students who are able to come down that. Okay, wow, mashallah. So you've you know, grown tremendously since the last time I visited. Uh, you're all, you guys are still in the same location, right? Same office. Same location, yeah, we're still the same, same location, yeah. Same offices, okay. And how big is your staff? So the staff varies because uh, so, sometimes we have staff members who, the, the, whether they work part-time with us or um, and depending. So, so right now, uh, we currently have around 55 teachers on staff. Uh, the, 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 the kind of the largest number we, we get up to is say around say 70, 75 teachers on staff. But right now we have around 55 teachers on staff. Uh, and that varies from teachers who are teaching full-time, teachers who are teaching part-time. Uh, we also have instructors who, uh, they're not in Jordan, they teach with us online. So they're outside the country. Uh, mm -hmm. you know, instructors in the United States, instructors in continental Europe, we have an instructor in Brazil, uh, so different parts of the world. Uh, and then uh, in terms of non-teaching staff, uh, that also, depending on kind of the seasons, things like that, that, that changes a bit. Uh, but we have probably another, say, uh, 25 right now, uh, non-teaching staff members who are with us. So, I mean, probably the, the largest we've gotten in terms of staff between teachers and, and, um, and non-teaching staff I think it was around 120 staff members, uh, kind of in between all of them. But right now we're probably close to say around 80, 85, something like that. All right. And I know that one of the big, uh, you know, victories for you guys, mashallah, is the, the process of having a lot of your coursework accredited with American mm -hmm. universities. So if you could speak a little bit about that, because I think that's also important, you know, kind of killing two birds with one stone. I, you know, I, I get to go abroad, spend the summer in Jordan and, you know, get to see the sites, but that, you know, it's all... I get credit for it with my home university. Yeah, that, that's a very good question. So, I mean, so credit, especially, I mean, you, yourself, you know, having uh, worked for a number of, you know, just been involved in the university system for, for so long, uh, you, you know that it's a very complicated world. Universities oftentimes, oh, yeah. it's like each university is like its own kingdom with its own laws and <laughs> its, its own systems in place. And so the, uh, the, this, the system by which and the process by which a student gets credit can oftentimes be pretty complicated. Uh, and a lot of times the, the actual say long-term relationship that exists between between organizations is what makes that process uh, much, much easier. Uh, so we've had different ways that students can, because as a private language institute here in Amman, we're not able to cut credit ourselves. We can't grant credit ourselves, but sure. rather it's through our relationships with universities that we have 
universities that have sent their students to us for a number of years. And so because of that, you know, their, their students can get credit uh, for them. We've had in the past as well, we don't have it right now, but we've had a school of record uh, that actually, so any student that studies with us, regardless of whether they're in their program or elsewhere, uh, they can study at PASA, they can get credit from that particular university. Right now we're kind of exploring school of record relationships with other, with other universities as well. So there's kind of a range of options you can have for actually receiving credit. And that has been, yeah, it's, it's been a very helpful process for students as well, that they, they know that these studies they're doing, it's, you know, they're coming for an intensive study abroad. So if they're with us for one quarter, uh, they get you know, the, the credit work at their uni home universities, depending on what's happening with their university, because not all universities necessarily will automatically grant credit. I mean, we sometimes have to go through a process and it's applied and whatnot. But students can get a year's worth of language credit for one quarter's worth of study. So in say eight to 10 weeks, they can get the amount of credit uh, that they would actually uh, get in one year's of study, one year's, but oh, an academic year of study at, at their home institution. Well, just to underscore how complicated this credit thing is, before I went to Princeton, one of the things that I was told was, look, language, you have to have a European language, either French or German, in addition to an Islamic language, which for me was Arabic. And if you can knock out, you can knock out the language requirement by taking a reading course. So I took a, uh, a, a two semester, each semester was eight credits, so 16 credits at GW, my you know, alma mater. Uh, for reading, German for reading. Um, but I took the class as an alumnus. Uh, so I think I audited the class or something like that. So I didn't have to pay for the class. So I thought I was like really being smart. So I took the class. Uh, yeah, I, I came to Egypt, uh, came back, went to Princeton, totally forgot about all of this. And when it came time for me to graduate, they're like, oh, we noticed in the checklist, you don't have your European language requirement. I was like, oh yeah, but I took this reading course. And when I went to GW, there was no record of it. <laughs> so this was like, I was not going to graduate. I was not going to be granted. So, I mean, Alhamdulillah, it came through. I had to go to like the alumni office and like some back office and found some documentation. And I had, I felt like I was in the Middle East. I had to like run around and get it stamped. But, you know, this is one U.S. university on the East Coast, another university on the East Coast. And it was very hard to get those credits to, or, or that class to be acknowledged. So for you guys to do this, you know, across seas and across cultures and across countries, you know, I just want to underscore how, how great that is because it's not, you know, people that transfer inside the US, oftentimes they lose credit uh, because mm -hmm. one university <laughs> won't recognize it from another. Yeah, I mean, uh, what's, what's really interesting, and just to add to your point here and let you finish your statement, but the, the what's interesting we find the departments within a university as well also have kind of varying levels of influence. And so I think you'll find a lot of times that study abroad departments have an interesting level of influence in the university. And depending on the university that they're in. Uh, and so because study abroad oftentimes can be a kind of a money-making source for the university uh, where students are studying and study abroad. They're, they're, they're studying with the university. They're getting credit with, uh, with the university. You're oftentimes still paying tuition, if they're, especially if they're using a particular, you know, say, study abroad organization that the university has approved or whatever it may be. They're still actually putting finances into the university. They're, they're still kind of going to be paying for certain credits in some, in some fashion or the other. Uh, but they're not actually using up university space. They're not doing any number of different things that are there. And they also, th that study abroad, depending on the, what the university, what the university's ranking, you have a lot of universities that they're not in the top 10, they're not in the top 25, they're not tier one, they're not tier two. And it doesn't look like they're going to be entering into those tiers anytime in the near future. And so what is kind of a real way for them to, to you know, 
to attract students to their program is to try to work on these other areas, you know, to, to not necessarily, you, you can't compete and say that, you know, we've been around for 400 years, because that's just, that's just a hard fact, you know, and so if you've been around for 50 <laughs> years, you, you, can't, you can't change that, and, and so it's something they can't actually compete with, you know, the, the, the Harvards and the, the you know, the, the, the Yales and Princetons in terms of just kind of like the, the age of that, that particular mm -hmm. organization. But they can compete in these other areas, and I'm sure you've kind of seen this, you know, even in the area of a kind of realm of business, where they talk about this blue ocean strategy, uh, you know, where there's the oh, man, red that is my Bible. I'm sorry, okay. just, that's my gospel. You just made music by that term. I mean, I, I, I'll let you finish the statement. I'll tell you why I'm so passionate about that. Please go ahead. It's a, so the so in terms of when you talk about like the, like universities are kind of notorious for like the the red ocean what is the red ocean it is like these university rankings and you know for example like who has this where they're just fighting at each other all the time just to get who's producing more research and why are university professors just kind of this idea of publish or perish is because the university needs you to kind of churn this stuff out in order to kind of get their rankings up and just in that particular area but the universities are like look we don't want to engage this at all and just because this is we're not going to win this particular battle let's actually you know try to look differently at what it means to actually have an undergraduate experience and if a big part of the undergraduate experience is we actually have a lot of study abroad we have internships we have work experience we have this type of stuff that's coming into it that is it's basically like a business end for, for, for the university. And so because of that, their ability to actually make agreements with organizations kind of abroad. You know, so, you know, a, a professor in a particular department, even they're gonna have to do a lot of paperwork, a lot of pushing, a lot of kind of footwork to get particular approvals that the study abroad department will be able to get much faster. Yeah, you know, even though the study abroad, the person working in the study abroad department, you know, it didn't have to go through the same type of hiring process. And it, it, it was, I mean, I don't wanna, discount their abilities, but, but the idea is that it's a, it's a very different experience in terms of what their role is in the, in the university. And so because of that, it's, it's interesting in terms of like how study abroad departments that once you have a relationship that's there, that you can do a lot. There's a lot that actually can kind of be worked towards and you, you can really have people who they, they, they want this to happen. They, they, they really want this to kind of occur. Not just the idea, I mean, I don't wanna make everything sound like it's just money in, in that sense. They, they really want the students, I mean, dealing with study abroad, uh, program coordinators, especially this time right now, they really are upset that their their mm. students are not able to have the, the study abroad experience that they've been able to coordinate uh, for students in the past. But just in terms of a university as an overall system, and as we've seen right now, you know, in COVID, and I'm sorry for being so verbose here, but but in terms of as we've seen right now in COVID, that you know, universities are many of them are teetering on the edge. I mean, we had like close oh. to 300 universities that have closed forever in, in, in the United States and, and, and however many world, how many more worldwide that, you know, an additional kind of source of income coming into the university uh, through, through multiple means is really important. I mean, it's, it's, it's something that, that's significant. But let me stop there because I know you wanted to talk a bit also about the Blue Ocean well, I mean, the reason I got so animated is that, that those, both of those books and the concept of the Blue Shift and Blue Ocean uh, I had a, like an epiphany when I, when I, it was probably one of the greatest books that I've read. Uh, and when I was running the coffee business, when I was running Coexist Coffee, uh, I realized that my misery and my depression and frustration is that I was just in this red ocean. And, and, I, and I needed that book to help give me the language, just like so a, a while ago, you mentioned domain knowledge. You get sort of given me this term. That book gave me this concept. And I realized you know, there's a reason why my margins are like, you know, like cents, 
on each bag of coffee because it's a red ocean. And you know, what, how, 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 how different can my coffee company you know, be? If it's direct trade, okay, everyone's doing direct trade. It's organic, well, everyone has it organic. Well, I know the farmers, so everyone knows, you know, knows the farmers. And then I realized I'm never gonna win at this game. And that was actually one of the greatest decisions that I did is to get out of that business uh, because there was no way to win at all as, as, a, as a startup, as a small player. And so that was one, one thing. The other thing is that I realized that this is a concept for life in general. And that, that this idea of finding where there's no competition, you know, uh, is had, you know, the Prophet mm -hmm. himself said that, you know, don't want and covet what other people have, you know, people are, are going to love you because there's no competition. But oftentimes when there's tension between people, and not to get so, you know, preachy, but you just you kind of elicited this. <laughs> the, the reason sometimes, you know, people have tension is because somebody wants something from somebody else. You know, how refreshing is it when you have, when you enjoy somebody's company, you don't want anything from that person other than the pleasure of their company. So I started realizing that that concept of the blue ocean, it's not just a business concept, but it's really a life concept. And that was, I think I, I came across that, I want to say like two, three years ago, I was actually traveling in Japan for the first time. So it was a very picturesque thing for me. And I've written about Japan on my website before, how important that experience was for me. And that's when I realized like, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to, you know, fight on sense on the bag of coffee. I'm not really making any change or helping the world or anything like that. And that's when I made the decision sort of to wind it up. So I'm glad you, you brought that up because I, I hope people that are listening and watching, you know, I think that that's a book that they should definitely read. I usually travel with that book. I have it as an audio book as well. So I've, I listen to it from time uh, and from time and again, uh, it's a wonderful, wonderful concept. So since we you kind of segued a little bit into business, one thing that I did want to ask you on record because it came up last week when we were talking is you mentioned to me, I think it's a quote by Bill Gates that somebody asked him, you know, how are you, what's your, one of your secrets to being productive? And he said, two screens. I think if, if, I'm, if I remember the quote. You mentioned, yeah, the, the, the meaning of, I don't have the direct quote. I, I can maybe get you the direct quote, but the meaning okay. yeah, definitely is the idea of, of three screens. So he actually said three, three screens. Three screens, three screens. So, yeah, three screens, yeah. To be honest with you, ever since you said that, I can't stop thinking about it. So since we're recording, <laughs> we're talking anyway. If you can talk to me, uh, because I'm always trying to get like the laptop smaller and lighter. Uh, so, because when I travel and I'm on the go, it will be easier. I'm, sometimes I'm like, maybe I can, maybe I should shift to an iPad. But then when you brought that up, that's like the other direction. So now you got me thinking, and I know that you're using double screens. You might even be using them now. If you can talk a little bit, uh, I know it's, it might seem unrelated, but it is related because it's sort of a productivity tip about yeah. the, the magic. You know, you, you're like swearing by it. Like, you know, absolutely. the double screen. Yeah, yeah absolutely. No, I mean, so the way he described it, Bill Gates described it, is with, with the three screens where you have that, because he, he was also dividing basically, so the, there's the space you have available. You can look at it as basically this digital canvas that's in front of you that just gives you a lot more room to work with, but also even in terms of his workflow. Uh, you know, so for most of us, especially, you know, for those of us doing kind of admin work or work that involves working, you know, you're kind of working with, uh, you know, there's, you know, like if you're doing B2B, uh, you know, or even kind of B to C, like so business to business or business to customer, on some level, if you're kind of in that admin role, and you're not necessarily uh, someone who's on the creative side of things, or it's actually kind of having direct experiences with, say, whatever it is you're presenting uh, to, to your, uh, your, your customer base, that you're going to be involved with email. I mean, email is going to be, you know, a, a big part of your life. And then 
what ha also happens a lot with email is that you have the email itself and then emails, especially nowadays, you know, are going to reference things. They're going to have links. They're going to have links to another website. They're going to have links to a video. They're going to have, you know, mm -hmm. uh, links to, you know, some, something else you're kind of working on. And so that, that link is going to take you out of the email. It's going to take you somewhere else. And then also, also you're going to have, especially if you're, depending on your role in organization, there's some sort of work that you're going to be doing. There's a document you're, you're working on. There's a presentation you're working on, something that requires a certain amount of kind of focus. And so these three things, when you actually have the ability to you have your email that's open here, and then something you want to look, you want, you want, there's a link in your email that you want to actually look at and then connect back to that email conversation. You link it out and you can put it on one screen on, on this side. And then the actual work you're kind of focused on, you can have that still stable in front of you here. And so your ability that when you want to just kind of quickly reference your email or quickly while you're actually referencing your email, being able to look on the other side as to what the email is, is, is connecting to via link or, or whatever it may be doing. And then also to kind of come back to your continued focus work, whatever you're kind of producing, just the, the ability to have that physically in front of you is incredible. I mean, it's, it really changes everything in terms of how you're able to work with things. And the big part of it, and I think you'll see this a lot um, with, you know, all of kind of the gurus that are out there and, and the CEOs and we're all trying to dress like them and, you know, see, you know, see what exactly they, 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 they you know, they, 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 they eat and drink and people are asking Elon Musk, what does he have for lunch? And you know, all this type of stuff that people are looking into. But really, I mean, I think Cal Newport does a good job uh, with, with talking about these picker points. I mean, his big, um, you know, his big book about this is deep focus, deep work, I'm sorry, kind of deep work, just really having an ability to have just like no distractions and kind of focus in on something that's in front of you. Mm. Now, it may seem counterintuitive that having kind of three screens, you'd be like, well, you know, that, that's not going to allow you, you have all these things in front of you, it's not going to allow you to focus. But a big part of that aspect of, of being able to actually get into a focus zone, if I, if I can use that word, is that you have fewer kind of starts and stops. You know, because this aspect of where you're you're trying to do work, it's like driving down a highway. And once, you know, for any of us who've been on a road trip, once you kind of get in a rhythm, like you're getting down the highway, car's going well, you got your coffee, you know, like the, the, the heating and cooling is good. You're in a rhythm, you're in a flow. But if you had to take that same trip and you had to get off at every exit and get right back on the highway, every time you come to an exit, you get off the, at the exit and get back on the highway, this process of kind of speeding up, slowing down, speeding up again, slowing down, that mental process of kind of doing that where you have, I mean, I think the term is like attention residue. I think that's the term they use for it, where it takes you some time to actually, once you've gotten, we move to something to come back to it, that, that, that process, it really slows you down. And even your cognitive abilities, actually you're, you're, you're working on a much kind of lower level. And so the value of kind of multiple screens is you're not kind of opening things and shutting it and opening and shutting again, and then you kind of, you, you have the one tift. It makes it that much more difficult for you to actually kind of do this type of focus. Like imagine if you're, you, you're working with just like paper documents. None of us, if, you, if you're trying to compare between two documents, none of us would keep those two documents in a pile. We wouldn't keep, we wouldn't look at the one document and then put it under the other document, look at that document. We put them next to each other. And, and yeah. that's how we'd actually kind of be working with the two of them. Yeah. And so with these kind of multiple screens, there's an aspect of, I think back in the day, I mean, you probably remember this, like, you know, in the, in the 2000s, especially when Nokia phones were kind of, they were all the rave that the biggest idea was that how small could they make this device? And it just got smaller and smaller and smaller until it just became inconvenient, you know, to, to actually even dial a, dial a number. 
So similar thing here that when looking at with our screens that something being small is, it's helpful when we travel, it's helpful in kind of putting in your carry on. But beyond that for actual work, having a much bigger space for you just allows us to actually have multiple things in front of us at the same time. And me personally, I definitely find that it, it makes it much, much easier uh, to be able to actually do kind of just this contiguous work where, where I'm, I'm connecting between these, these different parts of what I'm doing in a given day without having, having to kind of just engage in a process where I feel like I'm switching all the time. Mm -hmm. So uh, yeah, I'm glad you said that. I, I definitely want to check check that out. I mean, I think uh, regardless of what you end up doing, uh, like you said, email is a huge part of it, and even you know, even editing these videos and getting them on the website and advertising about them, posting. I mean, that you know that does require a lot of the start and stop. I guess I got. I guess one's gotten so used to it that you just think that that's how that's how it is. But I have found uh, because I'm a I'm a uh, an Apple user. I have found that it is very common that I'll have, you know, my laptop, the iPad, and my phone. So I do realize why well, I am using multiple screens as it is, uh, but I'm, I'm actually using it to like distract myself. So I, I can see how that would help. Uh, so I definitely want to take that plunge and I definitely want to give it a try. My fear though, is like something that you said where I get to the point where I can't live without it. So I, I don't know, like, how do, I, how do you travel? Like you can't travel with all these screens. Now that exactly. I have all this recording equipment, it's like actually a big deal. If I have to go somewhere, I have to factor in, oh, do I have to take my camera and the mics and the batteries and the lights with me? But, you know, uh, we're always looking to do things better. You know, it's sort of, a, I think, a function of Ehsan also that you just want to make the work the best that you, that you can. So thank you for that recommendation. I'm, I'm definitely going to look into it. Yeah, no, there um, So, uh, I think if we go longer, we'll end up talking about personal stuff. I don't think people will be interested in, in that. You know, I've known Omar since Omar was in high school, actually. And, and Omar has known me since I was, I think, a freshman in college. So we, we go back a long time. Um, uh, I'm happy that we got some, some good content from you on, on Qasid. I'm definitely going to have uh, links to, to the Qasid website. Uh, I know that there's a fantastic YouTube channel on Qasid that that you just shared with me recently. I'm definitely going to get people on that. I, you know, I continue to recommend Qasid, but I, do, I definitely want people to, to learn more about it. Um, is there anything you'd like to close with, end with, uh, anything that you think I should have asked that I didn't get a chance to ask or we didn't get a chance to talk about? No, this has been great. I mean, th thank you so much for, for, for inviting me and for having me on. I really enjoyed our conversation. I mean, I'll probably just say that uh, you do have probably if there are any number of students who are interested in studying Arabic. Uh, so not specifically within the, the Qasid context, I think they're going to have to kind of see uh, what exactly is, uh, you know, the best environment for them to study Arabic and how to go about doing it. Um, but I think there is going to be for a lot of students who are thinking about studying Arabic uh, or are already studying Arabic right now, that particular process can be something that is at times really exciting and at times really kind of frustrating and at times that same point we talked about earlier in the conversation uh, where they, they kind of wonder what their direction is that you know did I do the right thing should I have done this maybe I should have gone to medical school and you know, whatever it may be they, they, they have those types of crises that, that, that come about and so I definitely think it's something that students uh, something that we recommend that students would I think also kind of be uh, find, find helpful is that some of the things we've been talking about today, like some of these, you know, we talked a little bit about some of these books and you know, blue ocean strategies and, and, and whatnot. Um, just briefly right now, I spoke a bit about Cal Newport, that students I think will find it very helpful, very useful uh, that 
a lot of the, those who are working in social science and those who are kind of trying to apply the, those particular studies to the, the, the business world, a lot of what they're actually talking about really is relevant for students studying a foreign language. Uh, mm -hmm. And that studying, uh, studying a foreign language, it really requires, so you've probably seen this, I, I always mispronounce his name, but I think there's a book called Peak. I think he actually passed away recently, uh, I think in the summer. Uh, but he, he's kind of famous for that whole 10,000 hours. Uh, I think that Malcolm Gladwell quoted him uh, with that, if, if I'm remembering correctly. Yeah. Uh, but just about this idea of kind of peak performance, what it necessarily means. And probably this would maybe be the last thing kind of lead just for students, maybe if they want to look into this a little bit more, they can. It's uh, like an can... Eastern European last name, right? Exactly. I think it's yeah, Erickson. I, know the, I, I don't know how to pronounce it either. I know the book and I've read it's it. Erickson. Exactly. Uh, so the book, if people want to look into it, I mean, what's what's valuable about these books as well is you can find on YouTube, people have very like, you know, 10 minute clips that, that actually kind of give you a very good summary of these books as well. If somebody doesn't want to read a, a, a given book, but something that you'll find uh, he specifically kind of talks about, and I'll probably maybe just leave this just as a kind of a point of advice for students who are interested in studying Arabic, wherever they, they kind of happen to choose to study Arabic, uh, is that we look towards this idea of say an immersive experience. I wanna go abroad, I want to study abroad and, and that's how I want to learn language. Uh, and there, there's a value in that. Uh, there's definitely a value in, in having a study abroad experience. But in many ways, a study abroad experience can actually become kind of like a gym membership. Uh, so in the sense, you know how you, know, you, 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 you sign up for a gym, the day you actually go and sign up for the gym membership and you pay, you actually like automatically feel healthier when, you, when you're walking in the gym. You, you Somehow the fact that you signed up for the gym, you feel like your BMI yeah. has, has changed. I did it. I signed up. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> and so there, there's something about you that's actually gotten better by, by, by doing that. And so a similar thing, the idea that like, all right, I've signed up for the study abroad experience. I bought my ticket. Like I've actually traveled. Here I am. I'm in country. Uh, but the real question is, and a lot of students you'll find will say, you know, should I go to Cairo? Should I go to Amman? Should I go to Rabat? You know, where, where should I go to, to, to study Arabic? And the, at least personally, the answer I oftentimes give them is I say, tell me what you're doing in your room when you're in Cairo or in your room in Amman or in your room in yeah. Rabat. And that's much more important than what city you're actually going to be in. Yeah. And so this is that point he brings up in, in Peak, this idea of deliberate practice. Uh, where you actually have to have their practice is not simply that I just showed up at the gym. You really need to have a plan. And that plan is also is more than simply the school you've signed up for or the level you're going to be in, but your actual daily interaction with the language. And what it really needs to be, and I'll just end with this, uh, is that when students are studying, they need to look at their language learning from the perspective of Preparation. So in second language acquisition, they always refer to this idea that anything, any learning we do is always based on what they call prior knowledge. You have to have prior knowledge that you're actually building upon. Being a blank slate and just kind of filling it up, that doesn't work. You have to have some sort of prior knowledge that, that, that you work on. Uh, and even children have that. And we talk about the idea of universal grammar amongst children and, and so that they have something. They're not just a blank slate. And so here that you have to, you have to build, you have to have some sort of like initial exposure you need to attempt, you need to, based on that initial exposure, actually produce something, whether it be, you know, spoken language, written language, whatever it may be, you need to kind of produce something. Then you need to get feedback. Somebody has to give you feedback on, on what you're doing. Uh, and that feedback needs to be more than simply like good or bad. It, it needs to be kind of good detailed feedback that's specific. They, they don't tell you all the things you did wrong and they don't tell you, very, very, they need to give you kind of three, four specific points you kind of work on. You take that feedback and you cycle it back into your studies. And when students are able to do this, 
you, if you have this system, and something to kind of loop us back to our original conversation or the part when we first started out talking about this idea that people studying abroad, especially those who are studying say classical Islamic studies and whatnot, that they, the responsibility is really their own. If they have this system that whoever they're studying with, whatever they're engaged with, they have a preparation and attempt feedback, and then they loop that feedback in, 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 into their own studies, they're gonna be able to see themselves move forward. They're gonna be able to see themselves progressing. Mm. And it won't be something where they they simply say like, have I gotten better? Have I not gotten better? Am I good at this? Am I not good at this? Because there's no necessary, there's isn't necessarily like a, an exam or a testing body that's there waiting to tell them. They can actually with, with real evidence see in front of themselves how I'm applying the system and actually getting better. So that would probably be, you know, for just kind of like the, that final statement is just a piece of advice for, for any students who are interested in studying Arabic. Uh, is that wherever you go, you can study Arabic very, very well in, in, in your home country. You can do it at your institu home institutions. You can do it at a study abroad environment, whatever it may be. But what's the most important factor is that you have this full system and that you're an active part of that. Uh, and not that we actually kind of wait for someone else to take us through that. And we, we always wanna make sure we have people helping us and giving us you know, guidance to the extent that they can. But we have to be kind of the main driving engine uh, for that to really be successful. Oh, I love it. Very good. Very good uh, thoughts to end on. And uh, uh, thank you for the book recommendations uh, as well. Uh, it's a great, a great first conversation. Hopefully we can, you know, maybe when, when things loosen up with COVID and, and travels are open, maybe we can do a part two and uh, who knows, maybe we can even do it in Amman and we can get some of the students on. But, but thank you, Ahmad, for your time. I really appreciate it. Uh, I enjoy talking to you as usual. Uh, and uh, uh, hopefully we'll see each other soon. Look forward to it. Thanks so much. All right, yeah, take care. Take care. One more thing before you tune out. To help me stay focused and manage all the things I'm doing, I put together a weekly email called Friday Ruminations that highlights what I'm reading, working on, and thinking in four focus areas. Happiness, entrepreneurship, books, and Islam. If you'd like to receive these emails, which are 100% free, please go to makingsenseofislam.com forward slash Friday to sign up. <laughs>